What are the problems with how the 1947 partition of India took place? How did Indian nationalist leaders like Gandhi and Nehru shape British social history? And has the discipline of history gotten devalued in the past few years? Hi, this is Shrishti and you're listening to the In Perspective podcast. In this episode, we're taking you back to a conversation from December 2020, when we spoke with historian Dr. Priya Satya. So to start off with, uh, we wanted to ask you about the discipline of history. One of the things that you've been critical of in the book is how the discipline of history itself has enabled the process of colonization, making it, quote unquote, ethically thinkable. So could you explain this to us? Around the middle of the 18th century, a new understanding of history emerges among Enlightenment philosophers. And what they're doing is they're trying to um, um, they're trying to find, uh, create a kind of world more worldly um, uh, uh, vision of ethics, a more worldly understanding of ethics. They're trying to think of how they can make sense of the world world without uh, imagining continual divine intervention in the world. So the compromise they arrive at is that. Okay, God doesn't intervene directly in the world, but he exercises a kind of providential care. So we should trust that as we see history unfold, um, even things that seem to be harmful or damaging or uh, devastating, destructive, we can trust that in time they will be vindicated, they will be proven to have served uh, a a fundamentally divine purpose. So we should not judge events in the moment. We should wait uh, and and then see how history reveals how we should judge those events. So with this understanding of of history and um, this idea that you can't judge in the moment, this enabled, um, this was the period of conquest, right? This is the period when the British are conquering lots of uh, South Asia and as, as they're engaging in events that in the moment, many times they feel, well, this doesn't feel right, or this violates my ethics as a Quaker, or this violates my Christian ethics, or what have you. They have this other idea, this um, historical imagination that they can uh, turn to, to assuage those qualms. And, and instead they can say, well, it might not feel right now, but my intentions are so good. And so I think in the future, it will be vindicated. So even though it makes me uncomfortable, I'm going to write this down in my diary and write about how uncomfortable I feel. But I know I'm doing the right thing because I'm serving history. And the British Empire is something that fulfills a historical mission, even if we can't see it right now. And in this book, and there are countless moments, you know, uh, moments of famine or moments of rebellion or moments of any kind of policy making or major decisions about empire, where you can see that the that often there are historians actually in power making policies or they're advising those who make those decisions, and and they're very much you know taking recourse to that understanding of future judgment in order to feel more comfortable with things that really, you know, some seconds and their intuitive judgment is telling them isn't maybe right. 
Does that make sense? That's, yeah, <laughs> that's also fascinating because I think that's one thing that we don't reflect on, right? Like as um, Indians, we've especially if you've studied history in postgrad, like you, the, the empire is always present, but we never kind of interrogate how did they do all of these horrible things? <laughs> how did right. their conscience permit them to do it? You know. Uh, even then, no, no one is a, no one ever thinks they're a hypocrite, right? No one thinks, oh, I'm behaving so inconsistently with my actions. No, you always develop a rationalization or a justification for it so that you you feel good in yourself. I mean, these are not like um, monstrous people. It's just that they have the, there's this there's this idea available to them to help rationalize things that might actually be making them uncomfortable. Absolutely. You'd mentioned that specifically in, in your book, you've looked at moments of crisis where, you know, people mm -hmm. say with a famine where people felt uncomfortable. Is there a particular instance that you can remember where then historians intervened and then there was some sort of a conversation around it or taking recourse to this idea? So, for instance, uh, when when uh, the massive Indian rebellion happens in 1857, Okay, this comes as a huge shock to the British. And initially for several months, uh, maybe a couple of months, a lot of people in Britain are saying, wow, um, you know, we must, we must not have been doing a good job. And that's why Indians are rebelling. I mean, what they're doing makes sense. But that, that awareness fades very quickly. And instead it's, um, there are all these atrocity stories and exaggerated, kind of crazy news uh, rumors coming out. And uh, instead the British uh, decide that actually we didn't do anything wrong uh, in our governance. Indians are just irrational, they're fanatically religious. Uh, they don't appreciate uh, the benevolence of our rule. They're, they're like children, right? And, and in, and in the, the histories that started to be written immediately after uh, the rebellion, multi-volume kind of uh, histories, um, you see, uh, so for instance, Kay, K-A-Y-E is, is a very well-known historian of this time. He'd already made his name for writing a history of the Anglo-Afghan War, which had its own controversies. And he sort of made a name himself as a former uh, Indian Army guy who's an insider and knows uh, how the bureaucracy works and has access to sort of firsthand accounts He's already made a name for himself as a historian of that kind, who's reliable. We use all the sources that are available, and he and he writes this, um, and he and he works in the new India office that's created at the end of that rebellion. The East India Company is abolished, and there's a new India office in charge. So he works in that office. So he's a bureaucrat making decisions about governance. At the same time, he's writing a multi-volume history of the of the mutiny that that is takes him I think at least a decade to finish and in there he's doing all of this rationalizing and justifying right where he's saying um you know uh this we only erred by being too good by being too zealous and trying to uplift Indians and you know just rehearsing all this stuff and assuaging um British consciences which were very much um uh, troubled at the time because the effort it took to put down that rebellion was immense. It was not easy. This was actually a massive war. And the British took, resorted to very, very brutal 
um, measures and tactics to put down the rebellion. It was extremely violent. I mean, thousands of people were just blown from cannon, right? So this is an ugly, violent uh, war. How do you, how do you uh, then um, re resurrect the myth of, British, of the British civilizing mission, right? So this is where a historian slash bureaucrat like Kay can be really, really useful. And John Stuart Mill was, you know, also a bureaucrat um, in the East India Company. And, you know, he's sort of stepping down as the India office staff are stepping in. And he he's also writing a defense of the East India Company and a kind of history of it that that does the same as sort of propagandizing all the 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 progress that it had brought. And and so you you again and again see historians or people who um, or you know, political thinkers who embrace a historical way of thinking, um, being in charge of the decision making or kind of laundering the decision making to make it all look good. And if you you can think all the way up to Winston Churchill, right? As he's a historian, a very well known historian, who's also the prime minister, right? Who presides over the famine in Bengal in 1943, right? Who who presides over uh, so much suppression of Indian uh, protest and anti-colonialism, where again, a couple thousand people at least were killed during World War II for protesting uh, for independence at that time. So, I mean, you can think of many instances. Those are just, I guess. Three. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that we've also historically found ways of forgiving some of these figures, right? Like Winston Churchill, especially known to be controversial. So I think that's also interesting that within how, how do we then reframe or look at some of these figures in history as well. And I think that brings us to the next question, which is sort of linked in a way, especially when we're talking about um, ethics and, and what shaped intellectual and social histories is how did the Indian nationalist movement and nationalists like Gandhi, Tagore, and Nehru shape um, British social history? Um, E.P. Thompson is sort of a, a very famous um, British social historian. He wrote a classic book called The Making of the English Working Class in, that was published in 1963. And he's sort of considered the father of history from below in the British uh, style, right? There are other sources, you know, other European influences and other parts of the world. But he's associated, what he, he works on England, right? You, you don't think of him as someone who works on or has anything to do with um, British imperialism. But in fact, his father was, um, had the same name, Edward Thompson, Edward John Thompson. And he was a missionary in India. His parents had also been missionaries in India. So he's a Methodist missionary in India. He becomes, he's also a literary scholar and he's friends with Tagore. He also later becomes friends with Gandhi, with Nehru, with Iqbal, all those anti-colonial leaders. And he also goes and um, serves with the British troops in the conquest of Iraq during World War One, And he's really disillusioned by uh, what he sees in Iraq, where the British are saying, we're liberating Arabs in this region from Turkish rule, but in fact, they're, they're making, they're colonizing them as part of the British Empire. And this is very, uh, it's like a an awakening for Edward John Thompson. So he decides that he goes back to India for a while. His first son is born there. And then he decides enough, I'm, I'm gonna fight for the Indian cause with my pen. And he goes back to England and he becomes a historian. So you have a missionary who becomes a historian. And what he's doing is very different from the kind of history that 
the policymaker historians had been doing before, but like John Stuart Mill or even Winston Churchill later, right, or in his own time. Um, he says, well, the way we've been writing the history of the Indian Rebellion of 1857 is wrong. And he actually starts with that story. And he writes a new history of the 1857 rebellion, which is a history from below, like looking at it from the point of view of Indians and really explaining how the rebellion made perfect sense. There's nothing irrational about it. There's nothing crazy or fanatical about it. And it's sort of um, redeeming Indians um, from the way that British people had been writing about them and that rebellion for um, so this was uh, in 1924, so for like um, 70 years up, up by that point. And, um, you know, the young Edward uh, E.P. Thompson is growing up in this house and, you know, people like Gandhi and Tagore and Iqbal are, and Gandhi and Tagore and Nehru are, are visiting their home and he's, he's picking up batting tips for cricket from Nehru. Um, you know, so he's exposed to these uh, men and, uh, and um, Tagore and Iqbal in particular are poets as well. And his father is also a poet. And, and all of that informs his way of thinking about history too. What his father has done, that kind of reductive turn or history from below he tries to do. And then also this idea that poetry should be infusing um, the way we write history. Like we should be, it should serve a poetic function, not just a objective social science kind of function. And, but he's embarrassed by his father's own continued investments in liberalism, because even though his father is fighting for Indian independence and, def, you know, defending negative stereotypes of, uh, of Indians, defending against those stereotypes of Indians, he still only wants, he still wants India to remain part of the Commonwealth and be a dominion, right? And he still has, you know, the lingering kind of ethos of, of someone who had once been, uh, you know, working for empire as a missionary. And so all of this is a bit embarrassing to E.P. Thompson by the time he comes of age in the 1940s. And then when he becomes a historian in the 50s and 60s, decolonization is, is really happening. Um, and, and, and for him, it's much more important to find other English values, the values of the working classes to, to show that all of, all of English hum, uh, culture is, is, is not um, beyond redemption in the way that anti-colonial thinkers were making the world um, uh, increasingly aware of, right? So he's trying, he instead turns his focus inward toward England, but the, the ghosts of that early childhood, you know, uh, in which he's exposed to thinking and kind of questioning of the old way of thinking about history in which empire is a handmaiden of progress. You know, he, he absorbed that from, from his father and the dialogues that were going on between his father and anti-colonial thinkers at that time. That's a really long answer. So I'll stop there and see if you have any questions. No, so that's, that's fascinating. And then that's how, uh, some of these figures and their thinking made their way into British social history. Separately, even people like Tagore and Gandhi are 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 explicitly questioning the I don't know what I should call it the sort of the the liberal narrative of history in which you know there is that providential design and great men uh, fulfill help that design become fulfilled and the British are uh, sort of the leaders of that. They're already questioning that. They understand that this way of thinking has helped to justify empire. So when Gandhiji says, uh, I'm gonna do nonviolence, 
he's saying, I'm not going to, I'm going to be morally accountable in the present. And that's going to make new kinds of futures possible than if I was, if, than if I were to be really treat the present instrumentally and say, well, I'll behave in the present in a way that will get me the best outcome in the future. That's a very strategic instrumental way of thinking. And he says, no, instead, I'm just, whatever happens in the future, I don't, I'm going to detach myself from the fruit of my action, that kind of Gita way of thinking, right? He's saying, I'm just going to do what's right to me right now in this moment. And I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to validate the, the British kind of his highly historical way of thinking. And you see uh, Tagore also is saying, you know, insofar as the liberal narrative of history is, is supposed to culminate in this, in the creation of a nation state, he says, no, this is, this is not a, a good plan. I mean, he's seen World War I, the way nationalism resulted in all this like destructive war, killing millions of people. He's saying, why do we want to, why do we want to do that? That's not a good plan. We don't want a world divided into fragments, right? We want internationalism, Vishwabharti, right? He has uh, kind of warning us against uh, getting sucked into the, the idea that history is about progress that culminates in the nation state and the empire is helping you get there. So in different ways, they have their own critiques of that historical vision. And what you see happening through the Thompsons is just a kind of reinvention or a new way of doing history within the discipline itself that absorbs some of those influences. But the old great man versions doesn't just disappear and expire. It, it, it remains too. I mean, so much of history that's popular today, is, I mean, how many new books do we have every year about Churchill or even Gandhi, right? Like great man history is, is super popular. It's just, it exists alongside new ways of doing history from below or more critical ways of doing history. So moving to a slightly different, uh, it's all of course connected, but I think slightly different from what we've been talking about right now is um, the 1947 partition of India and, and how it was central to sort of our making. Um, and what are the problems with how the partition of India took place? And how did it lay the groundwork for the tensions between India and Pakistan that we see till today? Do you mean what, what was wrong with the way it was implemented? Or, I mean, I just don't think partition is a great, was a great idea, period. It's not that it was implemented badly. It's just that it was a recipe for disaster, right? Um, but I know that that may not make... Uh, a lot of people happy to hear that. I mean, people have this belief that partition is a solution when you have communities that don't seem to be getting along, but there's no evidence that it's ever worked and actually solved any problem ever anywhere. I mean, you tell me if you can think of one, but still today, you know, whether people talk about Syria or Sudan or Yemen, they always say, oh, we maybe partition, UN people will say partition, as if partition has ever worked. It, it, it was a human disaster. The largest single human migration in history, millions of people killed, hundreds of thousands of women raped. I mean, how was this? I, I don't think it was a flaw of implementation. I think it was a terrible idea. Um, and it was, it was part of the, it was an idea that came out of the same um, mindset, the same imperial mindset. Um, and that, that's a long story that I cover in the book and how you can trace the idea of partition 
which was first applied, you know, in Ireland, and then it was suggested for Palestine, and then it becomes applied in South Asia, and uh, how British thinkers understood that concept as forwarding their historical vision of, you know, what the British Empire was all about. Um, but there are other, I mean, and, and, and I, I do describe in the book how Indian thinkers also played with this idea, what was Iqbal actually talking about when he said, let's have a Muslim India within India, uh, how he was actually trying to also get out of the same bind of nationalism that I, I was just describing. It, uh, Tagore was also troubled by, you know, as people who lived through World War I, um, they're trying to be creative and, and um, push back against that teleological vision of history culminating in a nation state. That was the, the excuse from the alibi of empire. And so he said, well, let's, this is a different idea. Let's, let's have a place, um, you know, let's, let's organize according to Islamic ethics, right? And have a Muslim India within India. And there are people thinking of federal visions. Um, and, and some of that, those ideas, which are really creative, um, and imaginative, they get kind of swept up um, in between the, the sort of more conventional um, understandings of what empire and nations and, and about empire as something that must culminate in a nation state. And so I described the whole, it's a, it's a confusing story, um, but it's one that I describe in the book and then, um, and, um, the, the, the particular circumstances in which it unfolds right after World War II, though that mattered a lot, the kind of experiences that people, uh, young men in South Asia had just had in war, um, the exposure to fascist ideas uh, from Europe as well, the kind of paramilitary organizations that they then formed in India, like um, the Ram Sena or the um, RSS, um, you can see those influences at work. And, and those are the kinds of groups who are well-armed because it's right after a war. There's a total breakdown, a total abdication of responsibility by the British and every other um, power that, that, that could have helped um, stabilize things. Um, and, and I think that's why it ended up being so, so horribly violent. This was not, it's not neighbors turning against each other. It's, it's organized gangs of, paramilitary men with jeeps and guns going around terrorizing people and hounding them out. And there are many more stories of neighbors helping their neighbors, right? Um, so, so it's important not to, to give in to that stereotype that overnight Hindus and Muslims hated each other and killed each other. And it, it, that's not what, it, now we have, I mean, there's this um, international archive called the Partition Archive. It's based in, in Berkeley, I work with them, um, but they, they have offices in Delhi and they work in Pakistan, Bangladesh, all over. And uh, they've collected almost 10,000 now oral histories. And from that, it's really clear that the violence was was quite, um, was not sort of neighbor against neighbor. It was not like that. I'm not sure if I answered your question. You no, I think that's a very important perspective also, which um, a, lot, a lot of people aren't aware of because I think the way we're taught about it or the way we know about it is literally neighbor turning against neighbor. This is the given. This is how, you know. Um, Absolutely not. I mean, look, I mean, there's so much evidence. Look, you have the uh, Khilafat movement in the early 1920s. Muslim League and Congress are working very closely together. You know, um, Muhammad Ali Johar is president of Congress. 
you know, in the early 20s, they're not totally separate movements. That's early 20s. And then in, in, in 20 years, how do, how do two communities suddenly just really, really um, find, suddenly find each other uh, impossible to live with? Um, it, it, there are very, very contingent factors that explain why, why partition happened. It's, it's not, these are not ancient hatreds. I mean, they were all on the same side in the rebellion in 1857. There's a lot of colonial social engineering going into this and in the way politics are organized in India. Uh, where electrics are based on religion and the British are working really hard to make sure they never face a joint rebellion like that from all communities as they did in 1857. So they, you know, they, they very explicitly say we want Bengal divided. We don't want it united because it's, you know, we can't control it then. We want to divide the Muslims and the Hindus. I mean, they're, they're saying it very openly. Um, but even then, in the early 20s, there's a cooperation behind the, between the communities. In Punjab, you have a unionist government, you know. Uh, so, I mean, you have to really look at the nitty gritty of what happens in the space of the few years just before partition. And even when it happened, so many people did not think it was a permanent thing. The whole world was in, in turmoil in 1945, 46, 47, all the way to, you know, the Chinese uh, revolution in 1949. I mean, there were mass minority movement, refugees crisis all over the world. And uh, the whole nation state system was in crisis. So there was no reason for anyone to think that whatever was happening in 1947 was some permanent um, barrier and partition between these places. And in fact, people did go back and forth very easily until the 1965 war. So, so it took time for partition to even happen and for people to accept it as something real and permanent. So when they actually moved in, in, in 1947 or 1948, we shouldn't assume they were moving with the idea that I am committing to this nation state. They were probably moving out of fear for their life because they were being hounded out in many cases and they probably thought they were going back and that's why so many women buried their jewelry in the walls and the floor because they're coming back to get it, right? So, so it's it's a really complicated story, and we should definitely not take the lesson from that that uh, Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs cannot uh, get along. And today is uh, Guru Nanak Ji's birthday, so it's a very important idea to remember. Yeah, and I think especially when India is again at a juncture where you know where where seeing so much of commentary around this or we're seeing so much of hatred I think it's important to remember those histories which um actually show the, the ways in which we united and live together positively and um moving to I think a completely different aspect I feel like you've done so much interesting work around these ideas that almost shifting between time zones and and um, no worries. Yeah. Different histories, but uh, you've spoken about the uh, written about the emergence of industrial capitalism in Britain, and how gun trade was an essential aspect of the emergence of capitalism. Could you tell us a little about how and um, how is this relevant for the colonized world like South Asia? Mostly, when people tell the story of the industrial revolution, which happened in Britain. It's uh, the explanation that's given is that Britain had a really conducive um, set of state institutions and this culture of knowledge sharing and tinkering and inventiveness, the enlightenment culture and, um, you know, government bodies that didn't interfere and they allowed 
these brilliant entrepreneurial geniuses to invent things and then and then you get this industrial revolution so that's really suspicious to me because the entire period in which this this transformation happened was a period in which britain is continually at war and we have to ask how that context mattered in the way um, industrialism uh, took shape in Britain. I mean, when we talk about um, you know, the 20th century and we talk about the UK or the United States, no one has any problem recognizing that the two world wars really helped, or World War II especially, really helped the US and the UK and other, and other um, hard hit countries get out of the Great Depression, right? Like we acknowledge that very readily. We talk about the military industrial complex, but we've never recognized that, that, that similar dynamics were at play in the 18th century when the industrial revolution happened in Britain. And that, um, so the argument that I make in this book is that a lot of the industrial transformation, not all of it, but a lot of it um, was being driven by government demand for all kinds of military contracting needs. So you can, and you can imagine in these massive wars that they're fighting, they were like logistically, you know, huge endeavors. They need all kinds of things. They need all the armaments, they need guns, they need cannon, they need ships, anchors, you know. They also need all kinds of food to feed these massive armies. They need barracks and bedding, they need medicines. I mean, you can, you can imagine just how big the footprint of a war would be in this, um, burgeoning industrial economy. So I looked at the particular case of firearms manufacturers just as one, one case where I could see at least that um, government contracts were driving the, the, um, a revolution in the production capacity over the course of the 18th century. Where at the beginning of the century, the British could make about tens of thousands of firearms per year. But by 1815, they could make millions every year and they had not, I mean, they had not turned it into a machine manufacturer thing. It was still mostly handmade stuff, but that massive change, shift in capacity was completely due to um, all kinds of government intervention in the firearms industry. Their government um, offices and personnel are constantly interfering in the the way that industry is organized in uh, the numbers of people who participate in it, the whether or not techniques are patented to you know, um, control the amount of knowledge sharing that actually goes on. So there are many, many ways in which the government was shaping what happened in that industry. And the argument I make is that you can extrapolate from this and you can imagine an, uh, a, you know, similar dynamics shaping, um, you know, how the government deals with, you know, even the woolen textiles industry, right, with um, all the uniforms for the men are coming from these um, wool uh, textile suppliers, right? So, I mean, you can think of it for, for uh, chemicals industries, farming industries. I mean, there's so many, there's so many ways in which you can imagine um, a similar dynamic, it, it will vary in proportion, you know, the extent to which it caused an actual revolution in that industry. But definitely, I think a lot of the change that came to firearms and to metallurgical trades generally um, can be traced to um, the fact that there was continual war and that these trades were helping to fulfill war needs for the government. And that's a really different story from what's conventionally told about the industrial revolution. And the other side of that coin is that the British knew this 
as the industrial revolution is unfolding, so there's so many commentators saying, oh, all this war is driving industrial change here. And then when they go out to the American colonies or they go out to India or Bengal, they say, oh, we don't want uh, them to compete with us. So we're gonna make sure to stifle uh, the, those kinds of uh, industrial uh, changes in those places. We know war is driving uh, industrial change at home. So we're gonna crush the Indian firearms manufacturing uh, industries. And they do that in Avad, in the Maratha Empire, in Mysore, one by one, they, they, all these places had amazing firearms manufacturing capacity. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of parity in the technology on, on both sides. That's why it takes the British so long to conquer South Asia. It's not an easy thing, right? They have to fight, you know, so many Anglo-Mysore wars. So many wars with the Marathas, you know, first, second, third, right? It, it takes a long, long time. And that's because there are equally good arms on both sides. Um, and so when they finally do win, they, they co-opt that manufacturing capacity. They make Indian rulers dependent on arms that are provided from the British to make sure that they're not developing their own industrial uh, you know, production capacity because they know they want India to be a supplier of raw materials that will support British industrial production. So that's the story I tell. So that's how the colonized parts of the world get uh, kind of implicated in this. And you get what people call, you know, the great divergence um, between the East and West, right? That's fascinating. And I think, um, again, definitely an aspect of industrial revolution, which hasn't been highlighted often in the way that I think any of us have studied it, um, and definitely important for us to think about and remember. And I think the last question uh, is kind of uh, takes off from this conversation and the importance of understanding different histories as we have, I think, almost through every question that we've discussed, uh, which is how has the discipline of history become devalued in the formulation of state policies? So what has led to this devaluation and why is it important that we consult historians in policymaking just like we do economists or political scientists today? I don't think, um, I don't want to say history has declined or is devalued. I think it has a different role since the late 20th century. It used to be always, you know, on the side, like it was the prime ministers and the policymakers who are also historians and, or historians are closely advising them. And then you see the shift in the 20th century because of the anti-colonial movements, also anti-racist movements, where his, historians are, are the critics of power. Right? They're the ones calling the government out and saying, you know, what you're doing is wrong or it's unjust or you're lying. <laughs> you know, we have documents to prove it. So, so history is still, it's, it's perhaps even more important, but it just has, it plays a different role in, in public conversations. Um, and that's not to say that the, the history on, is, is completely absent from the side of the powerful. I mean, President-elect Biden was a history major too, you know, he, you know, so it, it was considered sort of the essential um, uh, program of study for someone who, who had political ambitions. And now perhaps it's more, you know, the essential program of study who, for someone who wants to question uh, power, maybe for a journalist or someone like that, you know. Um, so it's still important. It's just, it's just, it has this other function now of, of um, exposing um, injustice and abusive use of power and things like that. So I don't want to say it declined. But that said, 
Um, when it took that critical position against power, it is true that economists and political science and other kinds of experts um, instead began to influence policymaking, right? And I do think it's important for historians to you know, call those out when they're wrong or make sure to continue to try and inform um, policymakers about what's going on. We just shouldn't have unrealistic expectations that they're gonna listen to us because what we're saying is usually kind of critical, right? We're saying, no, listen to uh, the vulnerable people or look after them or, you know, we don't want more imperialism. And these are not things that people in power typically wanna hear, right? Um, so um, so I, I, in the book, I just say we need to continue that struggle to be heard is really important. Um, and the redemptive work historians do has its own value and the critical work we do has its own value. Um, and, the, and that participating in all kinds of public conversations about history is also really important. Because one thing I think we often don't realize is how much of our knowledge of history is not coming from historians. It's coming from novels, it's coming from uh, TV shows, Netflix shows, um, you know, Hindi movies, those big pageants and, uh, you know, uh, Sanjay Lila Bhansali movies or whatever. And I mean, historians should be leaning, you know, we can, I hate the word lean in, but leaning in there and, and sort of um, helping those uh, kind of popular understandings of history become more accurate, more inclusive, um, and I think one area of public conversation where you can really see that happening is in some of these debates about memorialization, museums, reparations, apologies, the statues, which statues should stand, which should not. In India, that whole conversation about Babri Masjid, for instance, it's a, it's a huge conversation about public history, right? It, it didn't go the right way. Um, uh, historians said what they knew. And again, that's a great example where that's not what carried the day. Historians were on the side of, you know, criticizing what the powerful were doing. And the powerful just did what they did, right? But it matters that historians are saying, no, actually, that doesn't make sense or doesn't follow the historical uh, truth. So if, if they weren't doing that, then what? right, then we would never even know what the truth is. So it's really important to be on the outside of power and to keep criticizing. I think it's a, it's a really important role that historians have. Of course, we want policymakers to have good education in history and understand, but we have to be aware of how policymakers have abused and exploited historical thinking in the past. And that's what my book is trying to help do. And, you know, the more we're aware of that role history has played, um, like we know much more about, you know, the way anthropology has been abused that way, right? The more we know his, that history had that role, the more, um, you know, careful we will be in, in the way we think about history. We don't want to repeat where um, our policymakers and leaders are saying, oh, I, I we'll do terrible things now, but in 100 years, uh, we'll be shown to be right. I mean, we don't want the same thing, right? So, so it's good for history to be used in a different way. Um, and and uh, I don't think it's in decline that way. But I do think, especially, you know, um, there has been, I think, a lot of emphasis in, in the culture of education, even where I am at Stanford University, it's, you know, a lot of emphasis on engineering and computer science. I know in India, 
engineering is considered the best thing to do if you're super bright. I think culturally we should do just a lot more to um, acknowledge the value of history and the humanities and how necessary it is for a society to get along and be productive. And what is the point of having lots of engineers if, if uh, everybody is just fighting about, you know, love jihad and silly things like that. So, you, you know, you need, you need the engineers, but you need the historians. And that's the note we ended our conversation with Dr. Priya on. This episode definitely made us think a lot about the discipline of history and its value. We hope it did the same for you. We release a new episode of this podcast series every Monday. So be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios, the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films. 